Hello and welcome to the K Voices podcast. This podcast follows the K Enterprise's mission to implement holistic solutions for security, environmental, and social problems. Through this podcast, K Enterprises and MI Cynic join forces to talk about today's areas of concern and present innovative solutions. Hello and welcome to our second podcast in K Voices. Today we are going to be covering how to secure tomorrow's Britain. We'll be doing a deep dive into terrorism, counter-terrorism, security and the challenges of tomorrow's landscapes and how to secure tomorrow's societies, governments and nations. Today we are joined by three exceptional guests, two of which have joined us before. We are joined today by Mr. Gracias Casongo, CEO and founder of K Enterprises, an international trade and development firm specializing in modernization, security and infrastructure. K Enterprises has dedicated teams and partners who provide holistic solutions to tackle sustainable development issues with an understanding of the present challenges to help customers meet current and future demands. We are also joined by Mr. Chris Ula former police superintendent from the Greater Manchester Police, who has led some of the largest security operations in the history of the force, dealing with major incidents and emergencies. He's a qualified national security coordinator and liaises closely with the US authorities at an international level. He's responsible for business change programs such as GMP's headquarters and Agile Working. His recent work includes work at BlackBerry for its critical communications platform. And lastly, we are joined by Mr. Elliot Wilson, author, journalist, broadcaster and advisor, working in strategy and PR, as well as commentator on politics and parliament. He's the co-founder of PivotPoint, a strategic advisor and PR consultancy, clerk in the House of Commons, serving on several select committees, chief writer, then head of research for Right Angles, a London-based reputation management and thought leadership practice. So thank you all so much for joining me today. We certainly have a star-studded cast today, and I couldn't think of a better lineup to discuss what is certainly a sensitive and challenging topic, but a critical one nonetheless. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right into it. The first area that that I thought would be good to discuss would, would be the threat landscape for tomorrow's Britain. Now, what do I mean by tomorrow's Britain? I mean the Britain that we might expect in this decade, in the 2020s. And to that end, we have a, a nifty document that was published this year, the, the Integrated Review, uh, which was the product of a few months at at Whitehall, and it was called by the Prime Minister uh, to sort of address where, where we're at as a country defence-wise and strategy-wise, and there was a few different policy shifts that happened as a result of that. And one of the areas that it goes into uh, into some detail is, is of course, the, the defence of the realm and uh, terrorism at large. And it listed a, a few different areas that I wanted to discuss with my guests today, the first of which is cyberspace. From phishing to targeted ransomware, AI, machine learning, 5G, hacking drones, biometrics, and the so-called online cold war. It's certainly the buzzword of this year, and you cannot help but hear it almost everywhere you go these days. Cybersecurity, cyberspace. Chris, perhaps we'll start with uh, your opinion on, on cybersecurity. Well, I think... Uh, I think um... First of all, thank you for the introductions. Um, 
I think with cybersecurity, it is, it is, it is a buzzword. It is at the forefront now of everybody's thinking, particularly um, uh, within the commercial sector, within enterprise. Um, not necessarily as much around uh, people's home life as such, but per, uh, particularly around organisations. And I think that um, uh, yeah, I think we're going to see a, a big increase over the over the next few years of cyber attacks, uh, you know, the demand for, uh, for pay, uh, de de demand for payment uh, to release, uh, you know, sort of company, um, uh, architecture company, software, et cetera. And uh, my feeling uh, in general is, I think the only way to combat cybersecurity, uh, or that, when we talk about cybersecurity, we're talking about technical, yeah, the, the technology side of it is with technology. I think, uh, you know, so you're looking, I think you mentioned uh, AI and ML, you know, for the listeners, it's artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I think that's what will combat the cybersecurity side of things. You know, machines think quicker, faster, uh, and more accurately than the human mind can. Does that make sense? What does anybody else think on the call? Yes, actually, Chris, you're spot on. Uh, what we've noticed across uh, the board, and this is quite consistent, and when we engage with our friends from the from from counterterrorism, one thing we notice consistently is the cyber threats are not only escalating; they're becoming much more uh, dynamic in the sense that the old methods of securing your infrastructure does not work no more. And if you are not adapting and shift transforming uh, from the uh, from the edge to the core, from an end to end point, your infrastructure instead of security, you are already vulnerable. You might already have been uh, compromised without even realizing it. End-to-end uh, -end point implies not only from your server storage network, we also look at uh, desktops, laptops, mobile devices. Mobile devices include your phone, your pad. Um, if you're the kind of person who tends to uh, travel a lot and you have your own kind of printer, that as well is a device. You might ask yourself as well, uh, can I consider my car as well, or vehicle as well? Yes, that as well is technically a device. So all this goes in line and, and, and is synced in regards to the issues that we're seeing right now and the patterns of which how these uh, groups, now I use the word groups because we're going to expand upon this momentarily, uh, infiltrate and seek to not only steal data, uh, we have to. We're going to look at it in several layers. We're going to look at it on a commercial sense, as as Chris will mentioned. Mentioned. We're also going to look at it on a personal level. Now, why would any groups target you specifically? And we're also going to look at it on a geopolitical level. You know, what on a strategic point are certain proxy groups trying to achieve? Like, you know, try attempting to infiltrate and harm. What are the technologies they're using? What are the the, the tactics or methods that are using yeah i think it's i think it's interesting you say that and and one thing you just said there around a personal level and that is i think where the threat now starts to come across across the landscape because since and, and particularly now we you know we've we're in the midst of a pandemic the pandemic has escalated the uh, the, the use of remote working so people working from home so work corporations, organizations uh, took comfort in uh, building a fortress uh, around their office premises 
So, and everybody came into that, worked inside, inside that, and that was secure. Yeah. Um, people logged on when they were actually in there, and that was fine, and they had a confidence in that security. And every organization did penetration testing and all that stuff, and it worked. What's happened now is <clears throat> that's been completely um, sort of broken down uh, where everybody's working remotely from home, and you find that the, the, the attacks tend to be on a personal level. Right? Because they attack that individual first, get into that individual's device or whatever, and that individual then takes it into the workplace. Yeah. So it's a bit like the Trojan horse yeah. type scenario. Yeah. Brings it in. And and I think, you know, so that's where some of this now starts to and how you actually how you actually get people to realize the threats, you know, because it doesn't some of these don't impact them directly, mm-hmm. you know, and some don't happen overnight you know it's a build-up you know things happen and the time to happen maybe months down the line and i think these are the challenges now and uh, i think as as the generations you know as, as the younger generation are picking up and getting more involved in this side of things particularly around remote working start to realize where the risks are and you know where the threats are as well you know and uh, but from a personal level, and that's why I think that you know rather than rely on individuals, you know that's where your uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know uh, computers can pick up, you know technology can pick up when there's a potential threat or when you know something isn't quite right. It's things that you and I would never even be able to. Yeah. Uh, pick up on, they will do it, and they can then deal with that. You know, and there are organisations out there that can actually provide that security, that cover, you know, to do that. Uh, and I think it's it's it's, it's a, a change in direction. I mean, you, you can, can you imagine now going to an organisation and saying to them, um, you know, have you got, uh, don't install um, a burglar alarm. Most companies will put a burglar alarm into the premises yeah, for people who break in. Yet when you start talking about technology and saying you now need to put your this burglar alarm, this this you know technology to see make sure that nobody breaks in, it's a little bit different. We don't see it in the same way. Sorry, Chris. I think if I could just pull back a bit to to the integrated review that, that Thomas was talking about. There are two aspects, really, which I think uh, I hope doesn't anticipate too far what Grasshouse is going to say. The integrated review was a very interesting process because it was uh, the latest attempt, but probably a more successful one for the government, really to get to grips with its security policy in the broader sense, you know, from foreign relations right through to the kinetic edge of defence, you know, hard land operations in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever it has been in the past. And that was all sort of pulled together by John Bew in uh, in number 10, who's Boris Johnson's uh, foreign policy advisor. But I think in terms of cyberspace, there are really two different threats we're talking about. And this may be, I think, Brassie, what you want to talk more about later on. There is, as Chris was talking about, the, the sort of privateer, the, the sort of piracy, if you like, uh, of the internet, um, whereby people will go out to steal your data, to compromise your your network, whether that be for financial gain or 
in some cases, simply for the annoyance value. Uh, but then we also do have state-on-state -state action. And we saw this, uh, we've seen this with Russia and some of the Baltic states. Um, it's possible for one country to cause immense disruption uh, technologically and, and digitally to its neighbour. And that raises a lot of very interesting questions because, you know, in, in strict foreign policy terms, does that constitute uh, an attack on your, your neighbour in, in the terms that we would understand if there were tanks crossing the border? And this is something that NATO has put a lot of thought into. I, I used to do some work for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly and, you know, they're sort of uh, the foundation of of what NATO does really is Article Five of the North Atlantic Treaty, which is that an attack on one member is an attack on them all, and that uh, you know that uh, can provoke uh, a reaction. Um, in fact, the only time that's ever been used was in two thousand and one, when the US went into Afghanistan uh, as a, a NATO member, which had been attacked by Al Qaeda, but. The Russians are a great example. If the Russians interfere with the infrastructure of, let's say, Estonia, which is a, a very digitally connected country, a country which runs most of its services online, if Russia interferes with that, is that an act of war? Now, Estonia are NATO members. Do we then regard Russia as a hostile power? So I think we've got to, to remember that there are those two levels that we're operating at. And in some ways, and you would know far more about this than I would, both of you, um, the, the technology may be the same, but the scale of it is very different and the intentions are very different. So we need to understand, I think, what is common to all of the threats and where we need to separate them out. A bit. Definitely, Ellie, you're spot on because, um, uh, and just to kind of touch on, because uh, we will definitely expand upon this, and the state-sponsored issue is, is cannot be neglected. Uh, there is always a synergy between what's happening on a state level all the way to uh, the serious organized crime element, where you're seeing the manifestation of certain activities uh, and why, why on a targeted sense, you're seeing businesses being affected all the way to uh, infrastructure. On infrastructure level, the, the, ch the challenge is how do you uh, identify these issues, and then we're going to discuss down the line, of course, in more in detail about uh, some of the things like Pegasus and and, and and these issues. However, just to really briefly touch on, and this this is a point where uh, something that uh, uh, Thomas touched was quite interested was um, in regards to uh, targeted malware and also um, you know uh, biometrics. It's quite an interesting case. Now, biometrics is, an issue, is is quite neglected. Why is it important for somebody to have somebody's biometrics? What we notice across circa 2020. Uh, especially, you know, early 2020, towards late, uh, there was a, uh, a major uh, rise in per, uh, personification. What that means, for example, is you have cyber agents, are you cyber agents specifically, or cyber criminals, who are uh, deeply interested in person, pretty much becoming you. <laughs> and they're, they know exactly how to infiltrate. Uh, it's, uh, we're going to discuss today how this occurs. Uh, but just to give you some examples, how many of you listening to us today have received a text to let you know that you should go to your post office or you should go verify your uh, uh, Amazon account or anything like that? It seems very persuasive. And it happens to the best of us. You're, you have a lot of meetings and all of a sudden this comes up and you have a few seconds to consider that and you click on that link. Before you know it, it leads you to a so-called Amazon. It looks totally uh, legitimate, but in contrary, uh, what that is, is that they've infiltrated your device. And what they really want, above all things, obviously, they want to steal information. They want to, whatever reasons why they're targeting, and bear in mind, the targeting is always specific. It's always 
um, with intent. Uh, and if it's mass targeting, then that shifts a bit more into a state-sponsored uh, element uh, where you're trying to influence society and so forth. We're going to discuss that further on down the line. But the thing to remember, and this is very important, is that uh, it's, it's occurring much more aggressively. And they want to personify you so that they can actually uh, replicate you and actually use you as a means to actually uh, propagate, influence, and, and hack, and, and so forth. But the hacking aspect is only an activity among the end, the end, the end goal. Uh, really briefly touching on the state-sponsored side of things. Um, and, and plausible deniability is, is the game. So what they do, for example, is these groups hire, I use again groups or states precisely, uh, hire individual proxy shell companies and so forth, work through shell companies. Um, sometimes just individuals who are really bright. Hey, we've got a challenge for you. I want you to hack this, this guy. I want you to hack uh, this company here. Here's what I want you to do and, and the reason why is ABC. Sometimes, uh, and I'm going to brief touch this, on a state-sponsored level is to put a message out there. It's to say, well, you may you know, hurt us this way. Here's what we can do to hurt you. Try that again, and this is what's going to happen. This is what we're seeing. We've seen, we've seen a pattern with Russia, uh, and I must say overtly, China's being very bold in this area as well. We must not neglect as well Iran. Iran is a big threat right now. North Korea is a big threat right now. It's not to be neglected. Um, and obviously, COVID-19 has, ha, 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 you know, has a lot to play as well. And the question is, well, how do these uh, groups think outside of box in regards to these uh, social economic changes? Like, for example, on a social level, let's look what's happened recently. Uh, you look at what's happening across, across, across the West, especially in the UK. The reason why our UK government's finding it challenging uh, to uh, raise awareness and encourage everybody to be a contributor, uh, the See It, Say It, Sort It campaign is still ongoing, and we're going to discuss this further down the line. And the attempt is, the, the, the end game is to encourage everybody to be a contributor. But the problem is this, that we're dealing with adversaries that are that know more about us as a, as a culture, as a society. They know exactly how to influence us. They know that we depend on, we're highly technological. We depend on social media. We're constantly sharing things among each other. They understand that on a baseline, uh, because that's a dependency, we depend on this. This is not even a want no more, it's a need. Uh, and with the way things have shifted with COVID-19, it's not just, oh guys, everything's open again for certain countries. Go ahead, be free. No, we, we were going through a transformation phase again, where beforehand we were stuck at home. Let it be uh, government employees, all the way to uh, businesses, individuals, self-employed folks, stuck at home. And you were communicating with others virtually, families, friends, colleagues. Uh, what, does that, what does that do? Does it, does, let's not forget, it takes 30 days for, some, for, for a complete transformation of, 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 on a psychological level where you become, adapt, you adapt to a, a, new, a new norm. So it's not just going to be like, okay, everything's open again. And that's it. So they know this and the disinformation campaign is still occurring. Now, what I've done, if I were noticed in this very brief uh, chat here, I've actually given you little snippets of what we're going to be talking about more in detail, but definitely something to discuss further. Yeah, I think uh, what I picked up there, uh, Gracias, that 
I think regardless, whatever the threat, wherever it comes from, the level, the scale, personal, you know, organization, organizational, national, international. Uh, one key thing, which I'll come to later on, is all around communication. As a police officer, uh, you know, we, we rely on the public to tell us when things are happening. You know, moving forward now into the, what we're talking about here, when we talked about cyberspace, et cetera, you know, again, it's about communication. Whether that be human communication or whether it be technological communication, and I'll allude to some of the uh, areas later on around, if, if, you, if you'll allow me, uh, around where communication uh, has been critical. And you find it's critical in everything, even what we're doing now. It's about communication. You know, but if you want to defeat, uh, you know, terrorism, the threat, the risk, it's all around how you communicate. And I'll come on to that in a bit shortly. Thank you, Chris. Now, if I could just uh, steal uh, the microphone for for a second, because Gracias, you you mentioned, and Elliot, you've mentioned China, Iran, Russia, and I want to just briefly stop here for a second because. Of course, the, the, the integrated review does uh, name these countries. And um, although we may not think of them as, as, a, as a threat to, to a way of life, uh, they can be. And certainly, uh, Russia is a very evident example of, of the hacking and now the hackbacks, as it were, from countries like uh, France, who, who have had enough of this. Uh, but also here in the UK, we have felt the, the implications of, uh, of what we are quite certain are state-sponsored uh, hackers from, from China. Um, where it gets difficult is, of course, that we have a large commercial and trading relationship with China and that we know that they can play by the rules as well uh, in as far as our critical national infrastructure and more. The integrated review uh, mentions that there's a balancing act uh, between a, a trading with a, an increasingly powerful and assertive uh, China, but also protecting against these hotel practices. At the same time, it also uh, realizes that every one of these other threats that we're talking about today will require cooperation with China as such a dominant force in in the world theater. So I want to ask uh, our guests today what what you how you see China and how you see this balancing act and how you see the the, the next years the next this next decade that we're going to live how is that relationship with China going to pan out here in Britain? Uh, I mean. Uh... Now, Thomas, that's a very good question. Um, I'm going to start with uh, with China, uh, and then I'm going to go to all the way towards Russia and when, and slightly touch on on Iran and, and North Korea. So um, the the China the relationship is very complicated, and, and when, I, when we're talking about this, more specifically, Chinese people, great individuals, great great people. Let's be honest, they're really genius, great folks, very kind. But the CCP. Oh, that's that's a whole discussion. And what we're noticing is that the CCP is becoming much more emboldened and much more, um, I say, specific in the way they're trying to uh, dominate the geopolitical space. Now, what I mean with that precisely is you look at uh, the we. <laughs> The mistake we've made, uh, and, and I've raised my hands as, as, as Westerners, is that we've uh, allowed ourselves to become dependent, in some sense, on uh, this multilateral relationship where, on a commercial level, on just a trade, we 
can't mass manufacture as they can. I mean, open up uh, any, you know, uh, hard drive. I promise you, you see it made in China. The phones we have, the pads we use and so forth. Um, obviously, uh, that also presents security challenges. Uh, when you're manufacturing things from a country that is now heavily interested, or a government, not a country, a government precisely, that is heavily interested in influencing, uh, I would say, the geopolitical space, uh, it's, 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 we need to be much more creative, like it's a term, and much more intelligent about how we keep that relationship with checks. And if we don't do that, then what happens is 20 years down the line, we're going to look back and regret. However, one thing I'd also want to stress is that the Chinese agenda is slightly unique in comparison to the Russian agenda. And this is something I've noticed uh, um, consistently. Uh, when I say Chinese agenda, I'm talking about the CCP again and not the people of China. Because again, um, you take Hong Kong, for example. Uh, you take other parts of, of China, you, you, if you put it all in one bat, it's not fair. So the people of China are different from the CCP we're talking about. But however, the challenge right now is the CCP, the way they recruit agents is different. Um, they see every Chinese citizen. Uh, Tenally, you, you, you should work for the state. And at any time, they can call up an individual and say, hey, come here, I need, we need you to work for us. And it's kind of difficult for them to go, uh, no, we don't want to. The challenge we have in the West right now is that uh, we we are still treating um, the the way uh, uh, Russia and other states that are against us, frankly, on a on a state level, uh, sometimes the same. The way China, the way the CCP operates in terms of their activity is different. We've seen it in the back, and we've seen cases where they're trying to influence business, to trying to uh, hack into infrastructure. They're trying to influence individuals, and we've seen it live. And we look at that, and we're like, "This is real. This is happening. The issue is real." Uh, so the way we address this practically is by, first of all, on the business level, if you're a business, you need to uh, ensure that you have the right uh, security infrastructure in place. But on top of that, you need to be much more uh, scrutinizing. Is important. You, you know, look at the small prints. Look at the detail. What are they? What are you signing? You know, what are you agreeing to on a baseline? As a government, we we need to uh, be careful because what's happening right now? The CCP is now pushing pushing propaganda out there, saying that Chinese people, everybody hates you. Uh, everybody hates you. You know, stay stick with us. We we care about you. We're the only ones who care about you. And in result, uh, that means it makes it more. It's easy to to continue the recruitment campaigns and and influence our, our, our course. So this is why we have to start shifting that language from from China to the CCP. This is why I had to learn that myself because over time I used to say it a lot and then I realized a pattern and I'm like, that's smart. Now let's kind of pause now for a bit. I'll come back to that in detail. And Russia is a different case right now. Russia uh, is kind of under a lot of pressure. <laughs> they they're kind of like the bad the bad the, the, they've played a. Uh, I want to be careful here, but they, they, they're under a lot of pressure. And 
they're a game, and they know they can't go into a lasting war. They don't have the capabilities to do that. They've only started recently modernizing the military. It's, it's just they have no interest in doing that. So what they want to do on a, on, a, on a cyberspace, they want to dominate the cyberspace because they realize that actually that is where the real warfare is. And the cold, the, the cyber warfare is real. Anybody believes it's not there is it's, it's hallucinating. And also China has embraced that and has observed how Russia is doing it. And so, wow, we're missing out on something here. We should be doing the exact same thing. And again, the CCP to correct myself here. And they, they're doing it. So what's happening now is, is interesting. It's kind, of an ind- it's, it's kind of an indirect collaboration where, for example, is, hey, you don't step on our shoes. We don't step on your shoes. Uh, but we have a common, as I say, as I see it, a common enemy or common enemies. You look what's happened across circa 2020. And of course, I don't want to be too long here. And of course, Ellie, I want to pick your brain in this one here because you, you know this as well. And, and Chris as well. Uh, you know, you see what's happening, like the divide of, of Europe. Uh, you look what's happening across the UK. Uh, you know, look what's happening in Northern Ireland. You look what's happening as a country right now. Uh, <laughs> what saddens me, and, and I speak as a Brit, is uh, people are losing faith in their own government. This is bad. But it's not the people. It's, it's what's happening strategically behind the scenes. The disinformation campaign has been strategic. So what they do is careful. And at first, they, they play a long game. What happens is sometimes we, the mistake we make in the West is that we're sometimes very narrow-minded. We see things on a one, two, three. Yet they think 20 years down the line. They're thinking 10 years, 20 years down the line. We're thinking the next year, two years, three years, maybe 10 years sometimes. But they are consistently thinking 10 years down the line. And here's what's happening strategically. They know by through disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, they can influence the way we think, culture, and policy. And if, for example, they succeed, and when I correct myself, they succeed to infiltrate a minister uh, uh, or all the way to uh, Commonwealth countries and our allies and and our, our, our partners, it's all strategic. When you succeed to influence them, what happens is it makes it difficult for us to push forward on policies. Look what's happened recently in Germany. Germany is now filing a contract with uh, Russia because they depend on, on certain, certain uh, natural resources. And while we're going to just cancel that and you say, if we get it, you know, you know, we're going to be careful of Russia, they still have to play this, a, a smart game. And the thing is, actually, uh, the challenge right now, even the Biden administration is having right now, is trying to look at ways to you know, is trying to find ways to raise awareness about this issue, but also trying to move remove us from this dependency on China, on China and also uh, Russia. Elliot, what are your thoughts? Because I know these are kind of things that you kind of really talk a lot about. I don't want to pick your brain on that. What do you think? Well, I think uh, I think you're right, Gracias. I think if we're looking at the three threats that you've you've mentioned of Russia, China, and Iran, I think the most important thing that that we as as the West can do, and as the UK and and the US, is to be very clear and very uh, honest with ourselves about their intentions. The problem with China is that for a long time now we have seen it in economic terms as a kind of big shiny thing that we can chase after because it's a huge market um, and it's a huge source of, of manufacturing. Um, I mean, it, it's it's a market so big that, for example, if you're making a, a very expensive Hollywood blockbuster, you need that film to do well in China, otherwise you won't make money. 
Um, so if there's anything in it which incurs the displeasure of the, the CCP, then you are in real trouble. And, and that is something which you have to take into account right from the, the beginning of the process. Um, my own view on China is actually that demographics aren't in their favour because they have an ageing population which they're going to have to support for longer and longer. And although they've now lifted the, the one-child policy, they still don't have the kind of birth rate which is going to support sustained growth over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I think much more. I think, if anything, China are probably reaching the top of the curve. It's interesting to see that they're now starting to slow down a bit with the Belt and Road Initiative. You, you see various... Uh, projects that they're now rolling back on or where they're just, you know, standing slightly apart. And I think really, if you want to look at uh, the, the Far East and, and South Asia in terms of economic development, I think India is going to be a much more important player over the next medium term rather than the short term. But clearly what China wants to do is to provide uh, a role for itself as the, the hegemonic power in the Far East uh, with things like incursions into the South China Sea, uh, menacing Taiwan. Um, although I think it's it's an interesting point to to wonder about whether they actually have the capacity now to to invade Taiwan or if, if they are realising that they're bumping up against the edge of the envelope, their capabilities and their reach. So I think that, that may be an interesting consideration. But they want to control their their space, essentially. And they know that they can do it through the their size of economy and through their manufacturing power, but also through their relatively ruthless way of working. I mean, Grasses, you alluded to the way that they regard, the CCP regards all Chinese people abroad as potential agents. And I think that's that's right. And what they do is their trade policy, their foreign policy, their defence policy are inextricably linked in a way which probably wouldn't be acceptable in a democracy. Um, but each is shaped towards the same end, which is Chinese domination of, of the Far East. Russia, I think, is slightly different. Russia clearly has a very fragile economy, uh, despite its size, despite its natural resources. The unleashing of the, the, the sort of free market in the early 90s was done at extraordinary speed and was done in, in an atmosphere which was kind of like the Wild West. And I think that's left a lasting, lasting scar on, on Russia. Um, again, its military capability, while seemingly impressive, is, is not capable of sustained conflict. The one thing it does have in its favour is, of course, it's much more willing, as we've seen in Chechnya and elsewhere, to lose lives. And that's that's actually the, the West's great flaw. We're not really willing to put our troops in harm's way in any significant numbers. But Russia is, interesting in, is interested in controlling what it calls its near abroad. And I think Vladimir Putin is getting more and more open about that. Uh, he's now starting to say things in public, which he would previously only have said in private. He said recently that Ukraine and Russia are effectively the same country. So, you know, he already controls quite a lot of Ukraine. And I could see over the next five years, he could very easily make a move to, to control the rest of Ukraine. And that, that's something we've got to worry about because Ukraine is a democracy. It has ties to the West, although it's not in NATO or the EU, but it, it very much wants to be. Uh, and I think Iran is, 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 again, the same but different. Iran fundamentally is locked in a battle with Saudi Arabia for control of the Middle East. Um, Iran, of course, is majority Shia, Saudi Arabia is, is majority Sunni, and they are locked together 
uh, in in a battle for the dominant role in the Middle East, whether it be through proxies in Lebanon, in the civil war in Yemen, uh, further abroad, wherever it may be. And of course, uh, uh, conflict with Israel is is mixed into that. But I think what we need to understand, and this applies particularly to an American audience, but to an extent to a British audience as well, we think of the Middle East fundamentally as about oil. The Middle East is the fifth supplier of oil to the US. It comes after Mexico, it comes after Canada, it comes after the the domestic uh, product. Um, Fracking has changed the the energy game for the Americans. And so the Middle East is in a, a stage in which it's slipping in terms of its importance as a supplier of oil. And also, and the Saudis are, I think, really the only country who fully recognize this, they're running out of oil. You know, the Saudis have maybe 80 or 90 years left of oil, which seems like a long time. But when that goes, their economy is based on currently very little. And it's interesting the way that they have uh, been pushing quite hard uh, to develop alternatives. Mohammed bin Salman was was right at the forefront of this, still is, but of course he's he's become something of a, a pariah following the uh, uh, the Khashoggi incident. But I think we we need to understand where all of those threats are coming from and the extent to which they are able to manipulate cyberspace and our fragility as an open society in the West. And I think there's one more point which is worth adding and then then I'll stop and and let other people speak. You know, for 60 or 70 years, Western defence and security policy was based on the fundamental assumption that we had technical and technological overmatch against our enemies. So, you know, when we were at the height of the Cold War, NATO forces stationed in West Germany knew that when, and they did regard it as when for a long time, when the Russian army came pouring through the Fulda Gap onto the plains of Germany, yes, they would come in huge numbers, but they'd come in relatively crude equipment, which we had more than a capacity to handle. And I think the the cyber war, if you like, has changed that dynamic. We can't rely now on being more sophisticated than the people who wish to do us harm, whether they're state actors, private groups on behalf of state actors, or purely private enterprises. Uh, we just don't have the, you know, we don't have that excess capacity in, in technological terms. And I think that's something we've we've really got to understand as a uh, as a nation when we when we formulate policy, both in terms I think of security and defense, but also in terms of how we develop native technologies. Um, you know, with, this government has great ambitions towards its technological strategy, tries to develop the technological sector in this country. The US government is the same, but we need to understand what it is we're doing and how it fits into our wider policy. No conversation on securing tomorrow's Britain is complete, of course, without discussing counterterrorism. Now, we're living in an interesting time for counterterrorism because on the one hand, uh, with the general quote-unquote defeat of Daesh, of, of the Islamic State in the Levant, in Syria, we might be forgiven for thinking that the the kind of incidents that we had in, in the last 
10, 20 years, are now over or certainly in a lull. And I'll let our guest today discuss that a bit further. But where I want to shift my attention to is what MI5 chief Ken McCallum has come out to say recently, in which he opined that the threat to the United Kingdom from hostile states could be as bad as terrorism, but as well that one in five investigations at MI5 are actually as a result of far-right terror suspects, even radicalized teenagers, including, uh, and I read recently, the case of a 13-year-old child. On the other hand, of course, we have to contend with G.C. Hayes Q's uh, use of mass surveillance. And uh, there was a court case quite recently that stretches all the way back to the Snowden uh, revelations in which the court actually found that uh, the GCHQ has violated a right to privacy. So how do we balance these two things? Uh, Far-right, radicalized teenagers on the one hand, and then on the other hand, our, our rights. Um, and I'll let uh, Elliot perhaps uh, start us off on this one. I think it's it's very interesting the way that the dynamic of what we think of as as the terrorist threat to us in this country has changed quite quickly and and almost imperceptibly to the public. We still think as a a populace of the threat from terrorism as being from Islamic extremism, because we think about, uh, we think back to 2005 with the the Cuban bus bombings, we think about Westminster Bridge, uh, we think about all of these atrocities which were great shocks to the system because they were so public they were filmed they they you know they touched the lives of ordinary people um in the same way that 30 years ago we would have thought it instantly of northern irish terrorism but i think it's very interesting that you pick up on the the far-right extremism because certainly in america that is a major threat to to security uh it's easy to forget, for example, that the, the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1995 was by uh, a white supremacist far-right militiaman. Um, that was the, the sort of part of the spectrum from which that threat initially came. And we see now um, a lot of school shootings have been perpetrated by people who have some links to, to far-right supremacist agendas. We had, of course, the Christchurch attacks a couple of years ago, which were specifically anti-Islamic. Uh, and of course, in this country, it's it's just gone five years since Joe Cox MP was was murdered by a, a far right extremist. And I think this is something that we really need to to remind ourselves of because in this country, I think when we think of the far right, we think either of um, groups like uh, Britain First or the BNP. Um, you know, we think about people like Tommy Robinson, Nick Griffin. Uh, who, although they undoubtedly made life very, very unpleasant for minority groups in a lot of places, we essentially regarded as a bit of a joke. Uh, they were the sort of people for whom really nobody would vote. Um, they've never been elected to parliament. They've they've had minimal success in council elections. And we've always had kind of assumption in this country that our electoral system, our basic hardwired democracy will see us through against slightly clownish, if you like, um, threats from the far right. And if we go further back, we think of the far right as as Oswald Mosley in the black shirts, uh, Cable Street in the 1930s. Again, that kind of strutting ridiculousness. But I think 
two things have changed. One is the, the sort of international picture. Not only is there far-right extremism in America, but there's also uh, growing far-right extremism in, in pockets of Europe. You have the AFD gaining great brand in, in Germany, although they, they've perhaps now hit a, a natural ceiling. You have the what used to be the National Front, now the, the National Rally in, in France, uh, who are challenging for the presidency next year, uh, although the indications are probably that um, Marine Le Pen won't win. And you also have quite strong far-right groups in, in Scandinavia. Uh, we saw Anders Breitvik in, in Oslo, in, it was 10 years ago, wasn't it? Um, and there have been quite a lot of uh, anti-immigrant, nativist, Aryan supremacist groups operating in, in Scandinavia. And of course, the internet is a critical weapon for these people, because when you see people arrested after perpetrating atrocities like the man in Christchurch, you tend to find links on his computer to widespread far-right literature. That was certainly true of the, the man who murdered Joe Cox. He was uh, well into all of this kind of literature. And so I, I think we, we do need to be more aware now of the full spectrum of threats. And I think it was very interesting that Ken McCallum, since he became head of, of the security service, has been talking very openly about this part of the threat, because I sense that he's trying to, to steer us away from thinking down the narrow stream of, of Islamic terrorism. But I, I'd be very interested to hear more from Chris, because this is very much his bailiwick, and, and particularly around both the the far right and also the responses to the Manchester bombings, which of course was was in his his backyard virtually. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Elliot. I think I think you made some great points there. Um, you know, with the, I mean, first and foremost, when you look at the UK, you know, we police by consent, you know, which is different from every other country. We police by consent, uh, and what and the way I said that is consent of the public. You know, so it's not a police-run state, and and that, that's that's one fundamental difference that we have in the UK, and I think is and I think is an actually uh, a good trait that we've got as well. Um, but I go back to you know everything you said there. You know, it's the internet, the ability to communicate. You know, has made the world such a small place now. You know, people can reach out and. You know, and I think you're absolutely spot on with, you know, instead of thinking of your traditional terrorist groups, you know, we have got uh, sort of the, the fragmented parties and even what we call the lone wolf, you know, the individuals that that feel uh, aggrieved for one reason or another, and then they go out. Um, and, uh, you know, as you know as well, terrorism, you know, the nature of it is to strike fear into thousands, do one act that strikes fear into thousands. And, you know, they can do that in different ways now. They can do it in different ways uh, than, you know, than previously. You know, uh, you know we had the, uh, the the soldier that was attacked in London, uh, Lee Rigby was attacked. That immediately went out on, on social media. It was filmed, it was footage that went out. Um, and again, it causes it causes that panic and it causes people to think differently. So the challenge now, you know, is, and I keep going back to that communication, you know, we, we've got to rely on people to tell us the information, to share information, to things that you would never really think were suspicious before. And I think what you said there around, um, you, know, you know, some of the parties being sort of a bit laughable, 
you know, that's it was a bit of a joke. Nobody took them seriously. But I think now we've got to start thinking differently, you know, and, you know, the ability to prevent in the first instance, you know, then, you know, the ability to find out who's doing it, you know, and, and what our response is. And when we come down to privacy as well, you know, when you look at the, the privacy laws and, and, and a lot of the legislation that was put in place, it was put in place in a different uh, in a different time period, we didn't have the same technology as we've got now, you know, the, and what is privacy and what are people willing to give up for that protection? You know, the, you know, what, you know, the right to privacy and, and there's a balance there and, and it all depends. So, you know, I, I'm not bothered who, who, who uh, you know, for, for me, you know, if I log on and give the government access to my phone or wherever I am, I'm not bothered. But other people are, and I understand that. But I think there's a, there's a, we're coming to a time now where the, some of these policies need to be looked at and and seriously considered. Um, but the 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 attacks, you know, will still continue. I don't think it's a matter of if; it's a matter of when, and and how we actually deal with that. Uh, some of the stuff that, you know, I can't discuss over the air, but I think it's, you know, it, it's not going to go away. That's a definite, you know, and continually thinking of new ideas. Even now, when you think of terrorism, most people think of, you know, sort of death, bombings, explosions. You know, it, could you imagine now if the, the terrorist attack was on the network on a power, you know, take down a you know a power plant, the the you know the panic that would actually then start to build up, you know, your sewerage is gone, your ability to communicate is gone. If all you only have to take, you know target a city, that that type of thing, and that is crucial. That is where I see a different terrorism coming in than you know than just the explosions. Chris, I just wanted to ask a quick question. Um, based on yeah. your your long experience and expertise as a, a police officer, if if you could do one thing to protect the public better, what would it be? What's what's the the thing which you think you're held back by? This is purely a personal opinion now, uh, and and, and I'll probably some of the listeners to this will probably uh, go against what I said, but I think. Uh, the uh, a central database of um, in, in, of individuals, so we all, you know, so we're, we're, we've all got our identity. Uh, we're all known, and we're on the central database. I think that goes a long way. Yeah. So you're talking about personal identity, you know, identification. Whether it's, I mean, the government have toyed around with ID cards and that type of thing. I think that would be uh, good, and I think a change in, you know, the the privacy laws as well. Uh, you know what we could do with the privacy laws, but I think those two, if you know, would would certainly from a and this is purely from a policing perspective, would certainly help. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Chris, uh, if you what you shared is spot on, and Chris, you you and I have a, we, you know, when it comes to the, the, the issues of uh, communications, I totally echo what you're saying. It's not enough. Um, and uh, Elliot, uh, a very good point you brought last time in regards to. Um, you know, and, and Chris as well, the way we're seeing uh, terrorism, we need to shift it. Now, just for, for all of you who are here with us today, uh, please take a note of this. Generally, there's five categories of terrorism. Dissident terrorism, extreme left and right-wing issues. You have also uh, religious terrorism. Then you also have state-sponsored terrorism. And 
people neglect this, but serious organized crime is a form of terrorism. So being aware of this is very important. So if we were to look at these layers, they, they express differently, but they all are in the same, in the same family. So in regards to uh, uh, what you said, Elliot, and, and, and Chris as well, spot on. The right-wing issues, uh, extreme, now here's the reality. When, when I look at these issues, and again, this is now, again, if I may briefly go on a personal level, and this is where uh, on an open source intelligence sense and, and looking at it carefully, there's a pattern between, in some cases, or in most cases, extreme right-wing activities and state-sponsored activities. Now, why do I say this? Because actually, where does it start? Where did it get that information? Where are they motivated to push forward certain extreme views? We look at the case in the US, that was state sponsored, where uh, disinformation spread across the country. And it wasn't just the right that were attacked, it was the left as well. To the point, brought them together into a scenario that they were uh, talking about a possible civil war. It was real. Uh, we look at what's happening here in the UK and across Europe. There's a pattern. There's a real pattern. This has the, 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 the DNA of state-sponsored activities. And we need to be aware of this. So what happens, I promise you, try this. Go on uh, social media. You choose it, YouTube, Instagram, and so forth. Um, and uh, start, start looking around. Uh, if you start, if you're very curious into politics, or you have a curiosity into, and you go into, uh, go on a baseline to, to YouTube and put geopolitics, you'd be surprised what comes up. There are activities happening behind the scenes that are really concerning. I want to address uh, the issue of privacy, and and I totally I have to come uh, agree with Chris because the challenge is this, guys. When we look at the way this the privacy policies that were set at the time. And I know, I understand what Snowden was trying to do. And, uh, and no offense, uh, I've worked in blue chip companies, uh, especially on a big data management side of things all the way to, to cyber security. I can tell you overtly, and having also uh, had exposure to friends in, in interesting places. It's a very complicated thing to do, to manage big data. Structured data, not structured data. It's very complex. It's very sophisticated. It's very complex. So what you want to do is you want you want to be as target specific as you can. Uh, let me be very clear. Uh, I don't see a single government that's interested in, in understanding if somebody is going to go have a dinner uh, or takeaways every, every every weekend. Why would they want to care about that? The challenge we have right now with the Internet of Things. Uh, we need to review what privacy means. And it's so easy to blame our governments and say, for example, five, you didn't do this, six, you didn't do this, GCHQ, you didn't do this, but without giving them the powers they need to keep us safe. They don't care if you love chewing gum. They care more about uh, the, the, the intelligence that allows them to make informed decisions. And what we're noticing right now is a spike in um, uh, activities on a virtual space that is much more complicated. On a state-sponsored level, all the way through. Now, here's what happens. Uh, 
from a state sponsor, just to include this as a follow mark, on a state sponsor level, you have proxy groups who infiltrate our society and seek to divide us. Our greatest strength as Westerners is our unity. We are a democracy. Without democracy, there is nothing. There is no, there's not, there's no UK. There's not, there's no US alliance. There's no, the Western alliances is that they've succeeded to divide our, they are not completely succeeded, but they have succeeded drastically to divide our alliances. And they will use everything they can. So the right wing issues and left wing, left wing issues are dominant. And this is why right now it is now rated as among the top uh, counterterrorism issues. So yes, Islamic terrorism will still be there. And we're going to talk about, for example, what's happened in, um, in the Middle East. And the problem with the Middle East, we still have a narrow view, and I totally agree, a narrow view of the Middle East. If I may conclude this, Elliot, as well, to echo what you said, yes, the, the problem with the Middle East is we still perceive the Middle East as an, uh, all about oil. But the reality, if you look at it in detail, the Shia and Sunni conflict has always been there, but it's, it's transforming into a different, in, in a much more virtual space, but also about winning the hearts and minds. You look at what Iran's doing right now, uh, it's strategic what they do in Iraq. They're trying to win the, the, the minds and hearts and say, well, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to take care of the garbage for you guys. And uh, although we're seeing, a, uh, you know, Daesh being completely destroyed, but the reality is actually, are they really destroyed? Or you look at, for example, uh, from a recent san- uh, standpoint, uh, the previous administration, the Trump administration, the way they actually managed to assassinate uh, one of the top generals. <laughs> They're not going to sit there and just watch this. They have, they are, they are hell bent on revenge. We need to uh, keep that in mind, but we also need to be aware that there's, there's a dynamics. Thank you for listening to this episode of K Voices. This series focuses on finding decisive solutions to critical problems. If your business, your organisation, or yourself face a similar problem, please reach out to find out how we can work together. If you have a skill, talent, or zeal for solving problems, K Enterprises would be thrilled to know more about you. You can get in touch by writing an email to team at kenterprises.biz. This is your host, Thomas Brancato, and I hope you are as eager to listen to our next episode as I am to host it. Thank you once again, and I wish each of you a great day.